It is so good to be back with you this morning. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3. Now, when I was last with you, we uh, concluded our time in, Ezra, in the book of Ezra, but as we have mentioned several times, Ezra and Nehemiah really serve as one book. And so last Sunday, last Lord's Day, Pastor Laramie uh, preached through uh, Nehemiah chapters 1 and 2, and you met this man named Nehemiah, and he was burdened uh, for his people. He was not in Jerusalem, but he heard a report from Jerusalem, and he heard that the walls were in disarray and that the gates had been burned and that the city was covered with shame because uh, of these infrastructure problems is what we would say, but we understand from God's Word there was something else more serious going on. Well, this morning we continue in the book of Nehemiah, and so for those of you that this is uh, your first time, or perhaps you been, haven't been with us for a while, uh, you're going to see, again, we believe in studying all of God's Word. We're working our way through these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. This morning we come to chapter 3. Now you can see on the screen, I originally planned to preach Ez- uh, Nehemiah. I keep wanting to say Ezra. We spent so much time there. Nehemiah chapters 3 and 4. But as I got busy studying Nehemiah 3 this week, I was so excited about the things that I was seeing in God's Word that I I just couldn't cram chapter 4 in there as well. I didn't want you to miss the blessing of what God has to say to us in Nehemiah chapter 3. So we're going to restrict our focus to just that one chapter this morning. But I'm sure as you're looking down at your Bible, you're wondering if you and I are looking at the same book, Uh, because if you look down, you see lots of names, you see lots of places. It's not a genealogy, it's not a census, but it's getting real close, all right? We can all agree this looks a whole lot more like a government report rather than a riveting story. But we believe God's Word, and we understand. We quote 2 Timothy 3.16 all the time that all Scripture is profitable That means it's for our good. So we're going to ask ourselves this morning, what is good about this long list of names in the book of Nehemiah chapter 3? Are there any lessons we can learn from this list of names? Now, we're not going to read all of it uh, aloud. In fact, we're going to do something uh, perhaps a little unusual. We're going to focus on Nehemiah 3, but for now, we're going to read one verse in chapter 4. Because there's one verse in chapter 4 that serves as a summary for everything we see in chapter 3. So if you will look at chapter 4, verse 6, and if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, I will read this one verse and pray for us. Nehemiah 4, verse 6, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. This is the word of the Lord uh, for our good. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray this morning that you would help us uh, to set aside any disposition we might have, that we may look at Nehemiah 3 and think this must be boring. What good can come from a text like this? Help us to uh, open our minds to see what you would have to say to us through your word because we know you've promised us that it is for our good and for your glory. And so we pray you would bless this time in your word. For Christ's sake we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
So Nehemiah has returned to Jerusalem, and he has told the people of God's favor how God has uh, allowed him to have the blessing of the king. Nehemiah is coming back to rebuild, and so he's letting the people know we have God on our side, we have the government on our side, we're in good shape. And so at the end of chapter 2, the people said, let us arise and build. And then, just as we've seen earlier in this narrative of Ezra and Nehemiah, there came a bit of opposition, and the people uh, heard it, and Nehemiah said, no, we're going to rebuild, but you have no part in what we're doing. So it's very plain at the end of chapter 2, you're wondering, what's going to happen? Are they actually going to rebuild? Sometimes, I know you might find this hard to believe, but sometimes Christians say they're going to do something, and they don't actually follow through. So the question here, are these people actually going to rise and build? And so we have this narrative here for us, or again, much more like a a report in chapter 3 that lets us know the people actually do rise and build. So the question for us this morning is what do we do with a chapter like Nehemiah 3? Is it only to be used if we, you know, happen to have some kind of plan like this ourselves? If we're going to build a wall around the perimeter of the church, are we supposed to turn to Nehemiah 3 then? Is that what we're supposed to do? I I don't think that's why the chapter is given to us. Uh, Some people would would try to spiritualize this. As we're going to see, there's lots of gates mentioned. And so they would say, this gate stands for the Word of God, and this this gate stands for that, and this gate stands for that. I, I don't think that's necessarily the right way to handle it either. I think what we see in Nehemiah chapter 3 is the people of God doing the work of God. And when we look to the New Testament, we understand that God has taken his people that he's redeemed and he's planted us in churches in the local church. And so uh, he's given us these instructions in the New Testament. How are the people of God to do the work of God? Well, we're to do it according to God's word. And we see principles given here in Nehemiah 3 and I think bear out in the New Testament. And so our desire this morning is to see what lessons can be learned from this list of names in Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to have a very simple structure as we're working through. We're going to look at the work. We're going to look at the workers. We'll look at the people and look at the project. It's just two portions here. We want to see what they're doing and see who is doing the work. Well, we begin thinking about this idea of the work or the project. What is going on here in Nehemiah 3? Well, you probably have a heading in your Bible that says something about rebuilding the wall. You understand, that's why Nehemiah has come back. He wants to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And so if you could go with me back in time, about 2,500 years ago, and you land yourself right here uh, at the time of Nehemiah 3 verse 1, you would find yourself at the Sheep Gate. And if you work your way counterclockwise, through this passage, you'll wind up back at the sheep gate. You look there at the end of the chapter in verse 32, you see you're back at the sheep gate. So this narrative works its way all around the city in a counterclockwise fashion. There's actually 10 gates mentioned here uh, in the chapter, but the passage seems to be built around seven. So you see in chapter 3, verse 1, you see the sheep gate mentioned. You go down to verse 3, you see the fish gate mentioned. Verse 6, you see the gate of Yeshana is what my translation has, but you may have a footnote. It's the old gate. It's the gate that takes you to the old part of the city. Verse 13 talks about the valley gate. Verse 14 talks about the dung gate. Verse 15, the fountain gate. Verse 28, the horse gate. 
And then you get to the end of the chapter and you've made your way around the city. You're right back at the sheep gate. Now, we're not going to work our way through trying to determine what each gate uh, was, was doing, what the purpose of each gate was. Because the fact of the matter is, as you know, even today you can go to the city of Jerusalem. And so they've had building project upon building project upon building project for 2,500 years. And it's really hard to excavate a city that is still being used as a city. And so there's some things that archaeologists have been able to excavate. They've been able to tell us some things. But some of the stuff we simply don't know. We don't know what Nehemiah's wall looked like 2,500 years ago. But some of them you can understand. The, the fish gate, well, that's where the, the fishmongers would come in, and they would bring their barrels of fish to sell to the people. That's what was going on there at the fish gate. And at the sheep gate, that seems to be where the animals were brought in for sacrifices at the temple. And so the sheep gate was near the temple there. Well, the dung gate, I'll leave that to your imagination. But you see the different gates here in the city. But that's not the, the only thing that they're rebuilding. If you read through the chapter, you would see towers and walls. It's all related to this superstructure, the infrastructure around the city of Jerusalem. But if you read through chapter 3, you would hear one word repeated over and over and over. It's the word repair or rebuild, depending on your translation. It gives the idea to strengthen or to fortify what's already there. So they've got broken down walls, broken down gates, and they're rebuilding them. They're repairing them. And I really uh, appreciate what they did not do. Here's what uh, Nehemiah and the people of chapter 3 did not do. They didn't go to God and say, Lord, you know, gates are kind of old-fashioned. Our culture kind of frowns upon gates. There's really got to be a new and better way to do this. Gates and walls are just really have fallen out of favor. Uh, our culture just doesn't respond well to this, Lord. And so there's got to be a different way to do your work to suit the culture. They didn't say, Lord, how about we just ask the pagans around us, why don't we let them tell us how they would like us to do your work? That's not what they do here in Nehemiah 3. You understand I'm making the connection with the New Testament church. We're to repair and rebuild according to God's word. Remember, they have fallen on hard times. The people in Nehemiah's day are not in the glorious position they used to be in. In fact, part of the reason why this is so serious is because shame has been brought upon them. You remember that was the report that they heard at the beginning of chapter 1. Nehemiah was told that the remnant... The people there in Jerusalem, they have survived, but they're in great trouble and great shame. And the only reason we're told that they have shame is because the walls have been broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. <clears throat> so there's great shame upon the people of God. And they're given this opportunity to rebuild, to remove the shame, and they can't do it by uh, looking to man's ways. They must look to God's ways. Warren Wearsby has said, it's not by inventing clever new things that we take away the church's reproach, but by going back to the old truths that made the church great in ages past. They lie like stones in the dust, waiting for some burdened Nehemiah to recover them and use them. So the purpose, the work of the people, the project is to repair, to rebuild, not to invent new ways of doing God's work. Well, that's a short, basic premise about the project. That's a, a short word about the work. But I want us to turn our attention to the workers, even though we will continue to comment about the work along the way. If you look at verse 1, I want you to see who 
uh, the work begins with. Verse 1, then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priest, and they built the sheep gate. Notice, it doesn't begin with Nehemiah. In fact, Nehemiah is nowhere mentioned in chapter 3. If you were to read through this long list of names, you would see a different Nehemiah mentioned, and that draws even more attention to the fact that Nehemiah, son of Hakaniah, the one that this book is all about, he's nowhere to be found in chapter 3. I don't think that means he's absent. I think the point is that this is the work of the people. All of the people are involved. You see 40 or 50 names here involved in this work of rebuilding the wall. This is the people's work. It's not Nehemiah's wall. It's the people's wall. And in fact, the work begins with the high priest. The high priest and the other priest, they are the ones who begin leading the people. And this makes sense to us. When we look at a New Testament church, we understand that God has given the church pastors to take the lead, but it's not that pastors are to do all of the work. The work of God begins with the shepherds of God. And you see there, if you keep reading in verse 1, that they recognize this is not just physical labor. If you look, continue in verse 1, it says, They consecrated the sheep gate and they set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hanael. They consecrated it twice. That means they, they set it apart as holy. The priests recognized that there was something going on here that far exceeded just building walls and putting up gates. There was something spiritual about what was taking place here in Jerusalem. Well, we understand. It makes sense to us that the priests are leading this project. We see pastors as leaders in the church. That Again, that all makes sense. But you understand the priests are not the only ones mentioned here in the chapter as doing the work. You see lots of other people listed here. The priests were not the only workmen on the wall. Neither is it to be that way in the church. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 tell us that God gave to his church shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So who's doing the work of ministry according to God in Ephesians 4? The people are doing the work of ministry. And God has given the church, the saints, he has given them pastors and teachers to equip them to do the work. So just like we see here in Nehemiah chapter 3, all sorts of people doing work on the wall, God has designed his church so that everyone is to be involved in the life of the church, in the work of the church. You see a beautiful picture of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that famous analogy about the church being the body of Christ. And it talks about some members are like hands and some members are like eyeballs and some members are like feet. And even some are uh, like the delicate parts, the parts we don't uh, expose publicly. But every part of your body is needed. It's important. You understand that. If, if you've had any part of your body removed, you understand that your body has had to compensate. So it is in the life of the church. Every member is needed. And we see that on full display here in Nehemiah chapter 3. Uh, the book that we have recommended to you for July and August, The Trellis and the Vine, if you haven't had an opportunity to pick that up yet, I would encourage you to do so. It's all about this same idea of every member ministry, everybody being involved in the life of the church. The church has been given the gift of pastors and teachers to equip you to do the work, but it's for all of us to be involved doing what the Lord has called us to do. And again, you have that picture here in Nehemiah 3. 
Dwight Moody was an evangelist. He lived about 100, 150 years ago. Perhaps you've heard of him, but he said, even in his day, he said, a great many people have got a false idea about the church. They've got an idea that the church is a place to rest in, to get into a nicely cushioned pew and contribute to the charities, listen to the minister, and to do their share to keep the church out of bankruptcy. That's all they want. The idea of work for them, actual work in the church, never enters their minds. Well, if Dwight Moody said that 150 years ago, what would he say about the church in America today? When you read through this passage, you'll notice that there's lots of vocations involved here. I've already read to you verse 1 that mentions priests and the high priest. You go throughout the chapter, you see rulers mentioned. Your translation may say nobles or princes. These are some sort of government leaders. They're involved in the rebuilding. But in verse 8, it also tells you that goldsmiths were involved and perfumers were involved. That's right. Even the Avon lady was involved with the work going on in rebuilding in Nehemiah chapter 3. There's other vocations. When you get uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 32, it talks about merchants being involved. Uh, There's one verse that talks about a man having his daughters, and they're out there working on rebuilding the wall as well. In fact, you see all sorts of people involved in this work, except one. There's not one stonemason listed in the group. There's not one bricklayer to be found in this work of rebuilding the wall. Now, you understand, if that were us today, we would say, that's, that's not my gifting. That's not my skill set. I'm sorry, pastor, I can't help. That's not really what God has gifted me to do. But the people saw a need, and they worked to meet the need. They didn't say, I don't have the skills. Because when we read it on paper, we understand none of these people had the skills to do the work. I wouldn't call a goldsmith to build a wall. I wouldn't call the perfumer to help hang a gate. But these are the people. Everybody is involved in the work of rebuilding there in Jerusalem. No one said, you know, this is just outside of my comfort zone. I can't do it. It's just, it's just not what I'm comfortable doing. There's a man named Malchijah there in verse 14. Look in your Bible at verse 14. See what he was working on. I think he was outside of his comfort zone. I said he was working on the dung gate. That's probably not what he preferred to be doing. In fact, there are three men listed here with the name of Malchijah. If they're different men, then they all had different tasks. But if it happens to be the same man, we're told in verse 31 that this Malchijah is a goldsmith. So you want to talk about being outside your comfort zone. The man normally works with gold, and he's working on the dung gate. He's working on the gate where you go outside the city uh, to take your chamber bucket, to empty out your trash, your refuse, your dying things. That's what he's working on. This isn't part of his comfort zone. But he's working to do what needs to be done. Sometimes you may really enjoy doing the work that God has called you to do. But other times, you may simply see a need and work to meet the need, whether or not it's your preference, whether or not it's your comfort. If you read through the narrative here, you also see that some people, verse 28, some of them worked near their house. Look at verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired each one opposite his own house. There's other parts of the narrative where it talks about people working opposite their house. They're working in their own backyard. That makes sense. 
They have a vested interest in their neighborhood. They want to make sure that the wall around their home is strong, that the gates are sturdy. That is perfectly reasonable to us. They're working close to their interest, to their concerns. I know we like to identify the city of Palmetto as being a small town, and certainly in one sense it, it is a small town, but it's also really close to lots of other small towns, and, and we're really close to a big city which will not be named. But we understand that in the life of our church, yes, we have citizens of Palmetto as members of the church, but we also have people who are residents of Fairburn and Chattahoochee Hills, and Roscoe, and Grantville, and Noonan, and probably other places that I still haven't figured out how to get to. There's all sorts of little communities close by that all feed into the life of our church, and we praise God for that. But you understand that it makes sense for everybody to take care of the work closest to home. That would be a great priority to have is to make sure that you have proclaimed the gospel to your neighbors, to the businesses that you go to on a regular basis, the people that you have built relationships with. Sometimes one of the hardest things to do after we've built a friendship is to tell someone that they need to repent and call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's a nice person. We've built a great relationship. I mean, they're a great neighbor. What if they don't like it when I share the gospel? What if they stop moving the garbage bin for me and I have to do it myself? What if they don't help me out when I'm gone on vacation? What if I make my neighbor mad? That's often the mindset that we have. But I would challenge you to do the work opposite your own house, to work near home. Are you showing Christian hospitality to those near you that you come into contact with on a regular basis, those that you're seeking to win to the Lord? One of the, the most encouraging books that I've read this year is a book called Spurgeon, the Pastor. Most of you are familiar with Charles Spurgeon. You've at least heard other preachers mention his name. We like to quote him a lot because he really is an encouraging man to read even a, a hundred plus years after his death. And if you've heard anything about Spurgeon, you at least know that he's a preacher and he's a good preacher. And, and so people think of that's just what he did. He was a preacher. But more than that, he was a pastor. And he was a pastor of a megachurch before it was cool to have a megachurch, all right? He had thousands of members, but he viewed the local church pretty much the same way we view the local church. He took membership seriously. He really cared about the people of his congregation. And so this book that I, I read earlier uh, this year, it just went through all the different aspects of the life of a church, and it talked about here's what the Bible says, and here's how Spurgeon understood uh, what the Bible to teach. And then he gave, the author gave practical examples of how he sought to live that out in the life of his church. And uh, one thing that stood out to me in relation to this sermon uh, was that even in his day, Nobody really liked business meetings. That was just not a fun thing, even 150 years ago. I know some of you can't wait for the next church conference, but most people really don't enjoy business meetings. But just like we do, that was the time that they brought in new members into the church. And it was always an encouraging time to hear the testimonies of those being brought into the church. Just like we seek to do, we want to make sure that people who are being brought into the church are actually Christians. We want to hear how the Lord has worked in their life. And the thing that stood out to me is that as these testimonies were read, Spurgeon often played only a small part. The author says that rather applicants told stories of a praying mother, of a persevering neighbor, a stranger who invited them to church, a faithful deacon, and all kinds of other ways the members of the church brought them to Christ. And each story encouraged members to be bold in the work of the gospel. 
What an encouragement that is. That is not just on the pastor. They were all to be involved doing the work of ministry. That's the kind of ministry that we're seeking to rebuild here at Ramah. All hands on deck. Each member seeking to serve in one way or another. Seeking to share the gospel with others. Seeking to be the body of Christ. To take this calling seriously. Now, as I preach this, I'm fully aware that just yesterday we had a work day. And some of you were up here working hard, getting things done. If you haven't noticed, when you leave, look at the chapel. Look at the sidewalks around how beautiful they are. They've been cleaned and pressure washed. Other things to uh, get ready for the conference and homecoming. I'm not unaware that there's been lots of work going on even this week. Remember, I was out of town the first half of the week. But in the time that I've been back, I've seen many of you seeking to take this seriously. To be part of of the church to serve one another, to pray for one another, to be concerned when someone has lost a loved one, to be concerned about the health of one another. I've seen some of you serving homeless mothers and their children. I've seen people praying for one another. I'm not unaware of the service that you're doing. So don't hear me preaching this chapter saying, y'all need to do something. That's not the concern. You understand we came to Nehemiah 3 because it comes right after chapter 1 and 2. If I could be completely blunt with you, I'm not really concerned about whether or not the practical things in the life of the church will get done. You're on record for taking care of the physical nature of the church, of making sure that things are repaired, making sure that things are taken care of. There's some of you who are already working on service projects that won't even come up till November and December. We're in the process, as some of you know, of doing a kitchen renovation downstairs. And before that, we had a bathroom renovation. And on all of that, I haven't had to lift a finger. So don't hear me saying that I think that you're not working hard enough. I'm not concerned about the physical things getting done. I do think they could probably be spread around a little more evenly. I think there's a handful of people that take care of most things in this church, as there are. It's very common in uh, most churches that about 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's the old statistic they teach you in seminary. But I am slightly concerned when it comes to the spiritual work, the vine work, as this book uh, makes mention of the trellis and the vine, as I've explained to some of you. A trellis, you know what that is. That's the, the physical structure that supports the work of a vine. So the vine needs to be growing. The vine needs to be flourishing, but it needs a good structure under it. And sometimes churches can get so caught up on making sure the structure is beautiful, the structure works efficiently, that they don't plant a vine on it, that there's no spiritual growth actually taking place. Both are necessary but the goal is making sure that the spiritual work flourishes. I am slightly concerned that you may think the spiritual work only belongs to me and Pastor Laramie. As I've already told you from Ephesians 4, God's design is for all of us to be involved in the life of the church. Yes, the pastor's equipping, preparing, training you for the work of ministry. But we're all to be involved doing these things. We want to equip you. We take this calling seriously. That's why we're having a Bible conference to help strengthen your abilities to study the Bible. We're not saying you don't know how. We're saying we want to help you grow sharper, sharpen your tools, just like spring training for an athlete. We want to encourage you and help you grow in that. That's why we're going to take the principles that we learn at the conference and apply them in Bible study this fall, making sure that all of us can rightly handle God's Word, that we can see how God has spoken to us. That's why we seek to strengthen our prayer meetings, that they're actually times of prayer. 
It's not just us sitting around listing off ailments. We want to pray for those things, but we want to pray for kingdom growth. We want to pray that the Lord would work and move in his church. We take these callings seriously because we see here in God's word that all people, all Christians are to be involved in the life of the church. When we look at Nehemiah 3, we might begin to ask the question, why now? Why are they rebuilding now? After all, the gates have been burned for years. The walls have been in disrepair for years. Why do the people decide to rebuild now? Turn your attention back to that one verse we read earlier, Nehemiah 4, verse 6. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had the tools to work. Is that what it says? For the people had a strong back to work. Is that what it says? It says the people had a mind to work. Now listen, tools matter. There's some work that got done yesterday around here. You couldn't have done it if you didn't have the right tool. A strong back matters. Trust me, I feel it this morning. It matters that you're able to do these things. But God says what matters is that the people had a mind to work. They had grown accustomed to the apathy. They had grown accustomed to the decline, but now they're going to destroy the decline. They're going to obliterate the apathy. Why? What happened? Because the holy God had sent a man of God with the word of God to rebuild the people of God. And now they are reunited in the work of God. What an exciting time to be in the life of God's people. But we've got to be honest. Did everybody want to build? I want to draw your attention to verse 5. Nehemiah 3, verse 5. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. The picture here is that the wealthier people, the nobles of this particular region of Tekoa, were stiff-necked. They didn't want to be involved in the work of God. They didn't want to take part in the people of God. And for 2,500 years and from now until eternity ends, which will never happen, they are listed here in infamy as people who didn't want to work. We're not told what their reasons were. We don't know why. Maybe they thought they had a better plan. Maybe they wanted to start, you know, next week, next month. Whatever their objections were, they're recorded as being stiff-necked, as not stooping to do the work of God. That's not the way we want to be remembered. As we've gone through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've seen list after list. Uh, Sometimes you may wonder, are we ever going to get to the end of these list of names? But as we've reflected on the history of the church, we understand that names matter. There are names of of some people that that some of you remember, and you say, oh, I remember when so-and-so did this. So-and-so served in a mighty way. God used this person and that person in the life of the church. And so it is with all these names here in Ezra and Nehemiah. There are people that God has noticed, God has recorded as saying these people were busy doing the work. Now, if we're just honest... I suspect that there may be a few of you thinking in your mind, saying, listen, pastor, I understand, I'm with you, but I've worked, I've worked many years before in the life of the church. I'm tired. I don't want to work anymore. And and let's be honest, some of you may not expect to live long enough to see the fruit 
of your labor. That may be your objection to doing the work of the Lord. But you understand, the people here in Nehemiah's day, they had no idea what God was going to do with the work they did on building this wall. They had no idea that 400 years later, Jesus would come through the sheep gate and he would go by the pool of Bethesda and he would heal a blind man. He would give him his sight. And that's a picture of what Jesus has done with each of us. He's removed the blinders from our eyes. He's given us spiritual sight. He's called us into his kingdom and we have the privilege of serving him. They would never have dreamed that one day Jesus would ride through the gates of that city and he would be hailed as the long-awaited Messiah. That people would yell out saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would not expect that less than a week later, Jesus would be escorted right back out the gates of that city. And he would be crucified outside the city like a common criminal, dying in their place taking upon their sins, bearing the wrath that they deserved, being buried and raised on the third day, reigning victoriously forever. They had no idea that that's what God was going to do. Friends, you may be here this morning and not have understood, not have expected that there is that gift that God offers, that you can have your sins forgiven as well by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you have questions about what it means to trust Christ, don't leave here today without speaking with me, I would love to talk with you about the gospel, explaining that to you. You see, God was at work bringing about his purposes and his plan. All of this was part of God's story, and they were just building a wall. They were just hanging some gates. They were making sure that the towers would still stand. They had no idea what God was going to do with the work. They didn't live to see the fruits of their labor. They didn't live to see what God was going to do. Saints, I understand that some of you are tired. Some of you are discouraged. You wonder if God's word is really enough. Is God's word really enough to rebuild a church? Is doing what God has commanded us to do and nothing else, is that really enough? I pray that the Lord gives us the grace and mercy that you live long enough to see the fruits of your labor that you're rewarded and that you are able to see that God's word really is enough. But God doesn't promise us that we will see the fruits of our labor. He tells us to labor on until he calls us home. And even if you don't see the rewards of your work until eternity, I want to encourage you that God's word really is enough. Know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So perhaps you're, you're saying, all right, pastor, I'm with you, but what is it exactly that you want us to do? Well, let, let's start real simple. Here's one of the easiest things you can do to support the life of the church. It's to show up. It's to attend. It's to gather with us. And I understand that you're here today, and many people are not. Many are out, out of town traveling. There's all sorts of reasons people aren't here this morning. But one of the easiest things you can do to support the life of the church is actually come. And when you come, to participate. As God's word is read, to read it with us. As God's word is sung, sing it with us. As we pray to God, pray in your hearts. As as God's word is proclaimed, listen, expecting God to work through his word. It really is that simple. That's one of the easiest things you can do in the life of the church is show up and be involved, participate. If you're able, if if your health allows you to do this, be involved in other areas in the life of the church. Be involved in Sunday school. There's no reason uh, that every member of the church shouldn't be involved in Sunday school. 
If you're able, come on Wednesday nights to prayer meeting. Be a part of Bible study. Goodness gracious, be a part of game night. Be a part of the things we do. Not because they're commanded that, every, that you must attend every meeting of the church to get into heaven. but Because if you want to be involved in the life of the church, if you want to know what's going on, if you want to be a part of community, if you want to be a part of God's people, you actually have to gather with us when we gather. So I would encourage you to do that. But I'm fully aware that for some of you, that's, that's asking a lot. For some of you, just getting here on Sunday morning is hard work. And we're grateful for that. I don't want you to, to hear me being harsh. I don't want you to think uh, that your service to the church is not appreciated. Always know that there's one thing you can do, no matter what your health brings. As long as the Lord gives you breath, you can pray. We so underestimate the value of prayer in the life of a church. You may not be able to do this or that. You may desire to do things that you used to were able to do and you just can't do them anymore. Pray. By all means, pray. Another encouraging quote from Spurgeon, he encouraged his congregation. He said, do not let us become poor in prayer. It's a bad thing to become poor in money because we need it for a thousand causes and we cannot get on without it. But we can do without money better than we can do without prayer. We must have your prayers. The very least thing that a church member can do is to plead with God that the blessing may descend. So I ask you, do you pray for your church? Do you pray for your pastors as we seek to be faithful, to equip you, to lead you? Do you pray for us even when you don't agree with us? Even when you don't understand? Do you pray? We need your prayers. You see, I don't think we're being unfaithful to this text that's a long list of names and gates and, and buildings. I don't think we're being unfaithful because we must understand there is a spiritual aspect to this work they're doing. We saw that already as they consecrated the work that they're doing. And we've already mentioned, but I want to flesh out for just a moment the reason why this was so serious. It's because there was shame being brought upon the people of God. The name of God was being drugged through the dirt because of what was happening in Jerusalem. This is supposed to be God's people. They can't even keep a wall up. They're not a secure city. Their gates have been burned. Look at how powerful their God is. That's the shame and the reproach that's been brought upon the people the name of God was under attack in Jerusalem. And so the people of God, they're working, they're laboring, outside of their chosen vocation, outside of what they've been called to do. They're goldsmiths, perfumers, they're not bricklayers. But they're working in order to remove the shame upon the name of God. That idea of being rebuilt, we saw it, we see it many times here in this passage. Did you know that God has promised that he will build us up as his church? 1 Peter 2, verse 5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Did you hear what Brother Gary read at the end of that passage in Ephesians 2? It says, In Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. So I encourage you, brothers and sisters, let's get to work, knowing that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you knowing that 
We are privileged because you have saved us. You have called us into a holy calling. You are building us up as your spiritual house. Lord, we take that for granted. We forget what you've saved us from and what you are saving us to. That it's our joy and our privilege that as long as you give us life and breath, that we can serve you. We can gather with your saints. We can pray and to the best of our abilities, support the life of your church in various ways. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our fortitude. Would you strengthen our backbones? Would we be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor is not in vain? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we've been reminded of what may feel like a great burden on ourselves, we need to be reminded that God is faithful. And so we're going to sing of his faithfulness as a response to this passage. Would you stand as we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness.